This is um, the Christmas season. We've talked about this already. We're in Advent, what we sometimes will call it, the Advent season. Um, and despite how it's a lot of times culturally and uh, commercially explained, um, Christmas is about the coming of Jesus. I, I, I recognize there's some ancillary benefits. I, I like all the ancillary benefits, by the way. I like getting together with family. That's fun. Christmas program, Christmas music, giving gifts, getting gifts. I, I like all those things. And those are nothing wrong with them. We got a Christmas tree in our house, and we're going to put presents under it. We're going to eat a bunch of food, just like the rest of you. At least I hope some of you get to do that. I like all those things, and there's nothing wrong with those, but those are not the first purpose of Christmas. The purpose is all about Jesus coming. Uh, it, we call it the Advent. Uh, this, this word Advent, if you, if you don't, don't know that word, if you look it up in a dictionary, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that means a moment or a marker of a very important event or a very important person coming. That's what Advent means. Something is coming. Something is coming. That's what that word means. And the Christmas Advent, this Advent that we're talking about now, is that moment when there was one who came that the whole world was looking for. Uh, Paul writes about it in Galatians chapter, chapter 2. He says that it was when the fullness of time was come. At that moment when everything was just right, all of human history had culminated to that point. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. That's why we call this the Advent. Now, we're, we're a Christian church. Last time I checked, anyway, we're a Christian church. We believe in Jesus. That's what that means. We believe in Jesus. So that means that we believe He came. So I don't think, I hope I'm preaching to the choir that we believe Jesus came. If you didn't, let's keep talking. We'll convince you. Jesus came. But I want to just take a few minutes, or rather a few weeks, the next few weeks, and talk about why He came. Why did He come? That's what Christmas is about, Jesus coming. So why did He come? Now, if I were to quiz you and told you, and say, hey, guys, what do you think? Why do you think Jesus came? I think you'd give me some good answers. You'd probably give me some Bible answers. But I want to not just get our opinion on this. I actually want to go to the Gospel and see, and you can actually see on the screens now that the five weeks concerning today, why Jesus came. We're going to look at the Gospels and look at what Jesus said. That he, These are the reasons He said He came. He says, I came for these reasons. This is why I've been sent. This is why I'm here. And there's actually about 12 of these. We're only going to cover six of them because there's only about six, or five of them, rather, um, because there's only about that many weeks uh, that I can deal with this. But there's about 12 of these. So we're going to study five of these passages, look at each one each week, and we're going to do that through the end of the year. Today, we're in Luke chapter 4. Can I tell you that already? Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4, we're going to look in verse 16. That's where we're going to start. Now, we're going to look at a, an incident that Luke records in his gospel account. He records it pretty early. This is Luke chapter 4, so it's pretty early on in his book. But my understanding is, especially if you compare it to the other gospels, it happens a little later chronologically. Uh, Luke is, is kind of an interesting writer in this way. He doesn't always tell you things from this happened first, then this happened, then this happened. He tells his story a little more thematically. He's trying to get a point across. He's getting a message across. So he's not necessarily trying to give it to you in chronological order. He's giving it in thematic order, which actually makes this even more interesting because it's in chapter 4, which is saying at the beginning, before he even tells you a whole lot about Jesus' ministry, 
He's already just giving you the, the, the genealogy. He's just telling you just the basics of who Jesus was. Before he does any of that, he wants you to know something about the nature of who Jesus is and what he's doing. He's wanting you to know that right up front. So, in short, I, we're going to read all this, we're going to study all this, but I want to give you the headline. Jesus came to fix everything. That's what we're going to see here. Everything that's wrong, he's going to come and fix it. That's what you're going to see. Let's just take a minute to examine this. Look at verse 16. It, it says there, and he, speaking of Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, what we're seeing here is that Jesus goes to the synagogue. Um, the synagogue was where the Jewish uh, folks, the Jewish faith would have gathered on, on Saturday, on the Sabbath day. They would have gathered there, and they would have done some Bible reading. They would have had one of the rabbis explain that passage a little bit. They might have uh, sung a psalm. They, they would pray together. I, I don't know about you, but it sounds a whole lot like what we're doing this morning. They just kind of gathered together to worship the Lord. That, that was the idea. That's exactly the idea. Uh, clearly, a little bit of a different culture. Clearly, before Jesus had come to die on the cross, but nonetheless, that's what they were doing. And part of that, that process, as I said, was they would read the Scripture, and then someone would explain the text that they would talk about. And Jesus is back in his hometown, it says, where he had been brought up in Nazareth. That's where he, had been, he grew up as a boy. He was brought up in that, in that hometown. And because he was back at home, while he didn't really have all the respect that you would like to have had as the hometown boy, that said, he was the hometown boy, and he was a rabbi, and he was in home, at home, probably visiting mom and daddy, and he was at home, and they said, Rabbi Jesus, won't you come up and read the scripture for us today? So that's what, what he did. He gets up and, and reads it. Uh, this is a small note. I think it's interesting, so I'm going to note it for you. In verse 16, the last phrase there, says he stood up for to read. So well, their tradition was at the, that the, the person who was reading the text would have stood up. He would have stood and read. Then if you go all the way down in verse, uh, verse 20, after he reads, he closes the book, gave it to the minister, and sat down. So what they would do is they would stand and read the Scripture, and then they would have a stool or, or a bench or something, and they would sit down and then start preaching to them. So I'm going to stand through the whole thing. I hope you don't mind that. But that's what they would have done, and that's what Jesus did in this passage. But he just goes to the synagogue and he reads the text. Now, what he's given in verse 17, we see that he's been given the book. It's in the King James Version, it says Isaiah, uh, but it's the book of Isaiah. We know it is the book of Isaiah. He says in verse 17, There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and then he reads. Now, this, this was probably part of their regular cycle of reading. They probably have went to different portions of the Bible. They probably went to the the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, occasionally, and they would have went to the prophets occasionally. And it just probably the cycle of the reading, it was time to read Isaiah. That's just what it was. So I pulled the big scroll out and said, okay, Jesus, here's the scroll we're going to read. Now, even though they picked out the book for him, he knew what he wanted to read because you see there it says in verse 17 that he found the place where it was written. And, and I believe that he actually picked out this passage. He could have read any of Isaiah, but he picked out what we understand to be Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. It's actually verses 1 and 2a, because 2 has more to it than he reads. He stops at a particular point, and we'll get to that in just a minute. And what he's reading there in verses 
in our text, verses 18 and 19, what he's reading there, let's just read it, you'll see this. He says, this is what, this is what Isaiah read. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Isaiah writing this about this, uh, this coming prophet, this coming, this coming person. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the deliverance to the captive, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Period. Next sentence, he closed the book. That's what it says in verse 20. That's what he read. Now, if you're listening to that, you may or may not have been paying close attention. I understand. I read it a little fast. But if you pay attention to what he read there, it is a very messianic passage of Scripture, meaning it's a passage in the Old Testament that says, there's somebody coming that's pretty important. There's somebody coming that's going to save Israel from all of her troubles. There's somebody that's coming that's going to, to do all these things, uh, preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, etc., etc. There's somebody who's coming to provide hope and help and victory. Okay? You see, that's what, he, that's what he just read. But look what he says in verse 20. He closed the book, he gave it to the minister, sat down. Now, at this point, he's got, it says there in verse 20, all the eyes, or the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. <laughs> Jesus has everybody's attention. All right, where are you going with this, Jesus? What are you going to do now? We know who you are. You're, you're, you're Joseph's boy. You're, you're Mary's son. We know who you are. We just heard you read that. That's an interesting passage. You stop there, right there, right there at that point. You just read that little, that little nugget. You're going to do something with this. What are you going to do? They're paying attention. He, he potentially says more than is, than is recorded here. I don't know. I don't want to speculate. He could have said more. But what is recorded here, at the very least, is a summary of what he said. And at the most, it was exactly what he said. Do you understand that? So he at least said this. And he may have said more, but this was the summary. Here's what he said, verse 21. They'd all pay attention, verse 21. He began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He said, What I just read to you in Isaiah 61. They didn't know it as Isaiah 61, just so we're all clear. I know they didn't know that. We know it as Isaiah 61. They just said the book of Isaiah. But what I just read to you in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, that has been fulfilled. That was a prophecy, and that prophecy, Jesus was saying, was about me. He said, y'all are looking at what we just read. Jesus is saying, I am man, and I am God. He is saying, I am the one for all, for whom all the world is waiting I am the one who is uniquely prepared to give power and relief and healing and freedom and insight. I am the one that is giving this world what they want and what they need. Now, you continue to read the passage. We won't spend the time there, but I do want to summarize it for you. That they are pretty scandalized by this. They're not real happy about him doing that. In fact, in verse 29, they take him out to the edge of town. They're going to throw him off a cliff. They have a lot of problems there. Of course, we know that's not how Jesus' life ends. He lives many years after that, and is crucified on the cross for the sins of mankind. But nonetheless, this is scandalizing to these people. But Jesus is saying to them, and I want you all to hear this is what he's saying to you today, is I have come to fix everything that's wrong in this world. 
That's why he has come. And I just want to take a few minutes with you now to look at verses 18 and 19, just a little more detail, and look at the parts and pieces. What is it that Jesus actually is saying here when he says, I've come to fix, fix everything? He says, first of all, in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's been brought to this earth. He's come to this earth for the purpose of preaching the gospel to the poor. Now, when he says preach the gospel to the poor, he's ultimately saying, I have come to bring power to those who are weak. That's what he is saying. Now, now, let me put it this way. When he says the poor, he's not just talking about people who don't have a whole lot. He's talking about really poor people. Like people who have nothing. People who don't have anything. People who don't have enough power, don't have enough wealth to provide for themselves or protect themselves. Now, I know that we wouldn't necessarily in this church necessarily identify as a bunch of rich folk. There might be one or two of y'all among us, but even you are going to hide out because we know better than that. We, we want to we be modest about our, our things, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But what I'm trying to get across is we're not necessarily going to identify as this kind of force. And not only identify as it, most of us aren't. Not in this nation. We're a wealthy nation by by historical and even present-day standards. We're a wealthy nation. But there is something here about people who don't even have enough money to protect themselves, who are at vulnerable at every every turn. They have no wealth, no position, no strength. That's who he's talking to. And what he says there is that I've come to preach the gospel to them. And when I hear the word preach the gospel, I don't know what that means to y'all, how you hear that. When I hear the word preach the gospel, I sort of hear, he's just going to go talk to them a little bit. That's kind of what I hear. I know it means more than that, but that's what my ears hear. I'm just going to go talk to them a little bit. And what it brings to my mind is these politicians who every constituency out there come and they promise everything under the sun, don't they? If you come to if you just, just vote for me, and I'll solve everything for you. And they'll come, and they'll come to any... You just get two or three people together, and they'll come up and talk to them. That's what these politicians will do. They'll promise you anything. That's what politicians... That's what they're good for. That also kind of makes me think of these, uh, these companies who put these advertisements on television and on the Internet. And what are they doing? They're promising you the world if you'll just buy their thing. Solves everything. And they're just talking. Just a bunch of talk. But what Jesus is doing when He's doing... When He's bringing the gospel... That word gospel is not just a bunch of talk. It's not just a bunch of good, bunch of nice-sounding words. It is a gospel. It is an announcement. It is, it is, it is a declaration of fact that there is one who has come who is giving you what you need, giving you what you don't have. He is operating in that way. He's saying, I'm not giving you empty promises of a politician. I'm not giving you the shell game scams of a corporation. I'm actually coming in with the gospel, the truth. I am here to give you what you're missing, what you don't have. And he's specifically talking to those who have nothing. He's coming to give real wealth. Wealth that this world can never replace. In fact, he's talking, Jesus talks to a church in Revelation 3, chapter 3, of the, the church at Laodicea. And this is a church that thought they had a lot of stuff, and they did financially from a material perspective. He said to them, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. He says, if you really want wealth, you're not going to get it from this world, you're going to get it from Jesus. 
He's going to be the one that provides real power. And real power is the kind of power that shows up when you have got no power. He says to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength, this is Jesus talking, my strength is made perfect. It is whole. It is complete. It is exactly what it needs to be in your weakness. When you are weak, that's when he becomes strong. That's when he shows up as strong. When you have nothing. Unlike, like I said, these politicians, they, they like you as long as you've got a little power. The minute that you've got nothing you can help them with, where are they gone? To the next person. These corporations, they, they like you as long as you've got money to spend. If you've got no money, sorry, let me go to these other, this other group over here that's got some money. Jesus? You say, Jesus, i got nothing. What does Jesus do? Well, that's when I can start working. You got nothing? I'm the one that can help you there. He is the one that brings power to the weak. Second of all, his purpose is to bring healing to the broken. You see this in uh, the next phrase there. He says that he's been anointed to preach the gospel before. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That word broken, the broken part of brokenhearted, it's what you think it is. Something that's broken. Some outside force has come in and has damaged it. If you've ever uh, uh, broken something, I, I, uh, I have uh, run over in my, in, my, in my house more bicycles than I know how to... There's always somebody leaving a bicycle behind my car. And I've run over and it breaks those wheels. I don't care. I mean, it doesn't break them like they're completely torn apart, but you can't ride on it no more. And so it has to be something else, so we have to figure that out. But that's what, some outside force has come in and, and has damaged, it has provided, it, 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 it is crushed, it has hurt that, that thing. That's what broken means. But he adds this word on the end of that, that broken hearted. So it's the emphasis here is that outside force has come in and damaged, but it's damaged something on the inside. Your emotions, your internal feelings. Some of the hardest wounds to heal are internal injuries. And I'm not just talking about physically internal. I'm talking about in your heart and in your emotions. Some of us have endured abuse at the hands of a man or a woman. Some of us have endured loss, things that we held precious, people that we held precious. Some of us have endured hard times through no fault of our own, but just have endured one blow after another blow after another blow. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it is um, uh, by reputation. Maybe it is some, uh, whatever it is. You just deal with those hard times. Those are the hardest heal, uh, wounds to heal. But Jesus comes in and he says that I have come, look what he says there, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. That word heal he specifically is using a word that suggests that he is coming as a cure. Yes, he's helping it. Yes, he's improving it. Jesus always makes things better. Don't hear me. Don't hear me any other way. That's true. But he's doing more than improving the situation. He is actually. He's even doing more than reversing our fortunes. He is fully repairing, fully replacing that damage that has been done. Scars of loss that are on our hearts, he's offering to us an incorruptible inheritance. That pain of rejection, 
that just haunts you and you carry it around everywhere, the damage of that hate or that abuse that has been directed towards you, that you carry around everywhere, He offers to you full love, full acceptance, unconditional love. He provides to you. Some of you that have buried loved ones in the last month, year, couple of years, several years, you know that sting of death the Bible talks about. And it sting feels like an understatement, doesn't it? That slap of death, that punch of death, you know that feeling. He replaces that with eternal and abundant life. So when he says that he's come to heal the brokenhearted, he didn't come to pat you on the head and say, it'll be all right. No, he's come in and he says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to repair the damage. That's what he does. His purpose is to bring healing to the broken. Third, his purpose is to bring freedom to the enslaved. He says there that he has come to preach deliverance to the captive. Deliverance to the captive. Now, when he's preaching deliverance here, he is talking about freeing slaves, taking people who are enslaved and letting them go. But the one thing that even though I've never been enslaved in any kind of definition of that word, I've never been a slave, no one's ever owned me as property and forced me to do this or that, but I have, in another sense, have been enslaved to the, to the slave market of sin. I have been, and every person on this planet has been. We are all, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, says that we have all been born in sin, we like to sin, and we look for every chance we get to sin. That's what we do. And why do we do that? Because we are born that way. We are slaves. We are servants. We are captives to sin. So when Jesus says, I'm preaching deliverance, He's preaching that He's going to forgive that sin, take away the, 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 the power that that sin has over us. And He brings freedom from that sin. Freedom that I can leave that sin behind me and I can even kill that sin, put a dagger in its heart. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says that if ye through the Spirit do mortify or kill the deeds of the body, ye shall live. I can do that because of what Jesus has done. As Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You're free indeed. I can now, because of what Jesus has done, because He comes to bring freedom to those who are enslaved, I can now serve Him in freedom, freely, choose to serve Him. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, that I can, I can stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I don't have to go back anymore. I don't have to go back. I, I want to at least acknowledge here that is not to say that we don't deal with sin. I understand that. But it is to say that because of what Jesus has done, He gives us that strength. In fact, He says over in Romans, I've written it down here, Romans chapter 6 and verse 19, that you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness. He was saying there was a time where your only felt like your only option was just to give in to the sin. But now you can give in to Jesus. 
you now have this option. This is available to you. And you say, well, Matthew, I, I'm still struggling with my sin. I'm still struggling with this thing. I'm still dealing with this thing. And I recognize that's the human condition. But you now, if you're a Christian because of what Jesus has done, you have a power within you to attach something that you didn't have before Jesus. But that's why Jesus came was to give you that freedom to unloose you. Now, it's on you if you go back to the slave master and do his bidding. That's on you. But if you have Jesus, he has released you and says, you don't have to go back there anymore. That is not your place. Your place is beside of me. He has opened that door for you and I. We can choose to obey him. He also says in verse 18, he says there that he has come to preach the covering of sight to the blind. We need to understand this about sin. It has both physical and spiritual consequences. It actually makes you think of when you break, you know what sin is? Sin is ultimately breaking God's law, right? That's what it is. God has the wisdom the way, the right way to do it, and we don't do it. And when you do that, when you break the law, there are consequences. I'm not just talking about the law of the state of North Carolina. I'm talking about, like, laws of physics. You, you, you can go ahead and say, I don't believe in gravity all you want to. And you can go ahead and break the law of gravity for a few seconds. But eventually, that's going to be a consequence that comes down on you, right? That's the way that works. That's the way that works. That's the same thing with sin and breaking God's law. You can go break it, and it might, as the Bible says, be pleasurable for a season. It may well do it. But there will come consequences as a result of that. There are physical consequences. There are spiritual consequences. Ultimately, sin corrupts everything that it touches all the way down to the core. It's why we have, as human beings, some of us have bad genes, they say. You've got something that maybe is genetic, passed down from mom or daddy, and passed down from generation to generation, maybe heart defects and, you know, propensity to one cancer or another. These are all things that are a result of sin. Not because your family is a sinful family, but because we're part of the human family, and there's sin in the human race. You understand that? That's what that means. We have physical things. We, that's why we have short lives. There's Bible that you record people that were living eight, nine hundred years. What do we live today? You're 70 or better. You're, you're, you're doing all right. You're doing all right. I mean, that, that, that's just short lives. That's, that's the kind of life that's, that's because of sin. But the biggest consequence I think that we all face and we all have to deal with is the fact that sin has this really peculiar thing that it does. It makes it so that you believe the lies of sin the more you give into it. The people who are most blind to their sin are the people who are sinning. The people who are in the sin. That's the people who are most blind. I can see your sin all day long. I just can't see mine. You see, y'all can see mine. I can see yours. That's just how it seems to work. But when I look at my own sin, I tend to be blind to it. But Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I won't read all that, but if you wanted to look at that, Romans 1, 18 through 32, it really describes a sinful world with a dark heart who has been blind to its own sin completely missing the beauty of who Jesus is. Mistaking the vileness of sin for something good. This is actually the world that we live in today. I know some of the stuff that, that, that you and I might think, oh, that's gross or that's disgusting. I can't believe they like that. But we look at the, the world and they look at it and they say, we like that. That's good. Like, why don't you like it too? For 
we all have our own little sins too, don't we? Things that, that we like that we think is okay, but if the Lord says no, you ought not. That's, that's another story. We'll, we'll preach about your sin later. But the point is that that's, that's the way sin works. We look at it, we do it, we enjoy it, and we start thinking, that's good. And we miss the damage that it's doing to us. That's what sin does. It does damage. So what Jesus does, if you go back to this, this passage here, it says there that he's recovering of sight to the blind. What Jesus does is he is a light that comes into a dark room and he illuminates everything and helps us see what's wrong. Now, some of us get mad at him for it because we don't like to see our sin for what it is. But we need to say, thank you, Jesus, for letting me see my sin because it's hurting me. I need you to show it to me so I'll stop it so it'll stop doing the damage. But that's what he does. He turns the lights on. Woo! You can see now. That's what he does. He gives true sight. He gives true understanding. Because Jesus came, we now can see our sin for what it is. The devil wants nothing more for us to just put our sin over into a corner and say, nobody's going to look at it. It's okay. Jesus comes along and he shines a, not just a little flashlight, but a big old spotlight on our sin. It helps us to see what it is. That's what he does. He brings light into this world. His purpose is also to bring relief to the burden. I want you to see this. The last phrase of verse 18, to set at liberty them that are bruised. To set at liberty them that are bruised. To set at liberty just means deliverance, to be, be forgiven. But Jesus does more than just forgive sin. We talked about that. He forgives sin. But he says those that are bruised. These are people who are crushed by those external forces. They're overwhelmed by the pressures and the stresses. And he says, I'm going to forgive the sin. I'm going to take that off of you so that you no longer have to walk around with those pressures and those stresses on, stresses on you. Weighted down by the guilt and the shame of the, the pressure to perform, the pressure to, to look good in front of people. You don't have to do that anymore. He says, I don't want you to be anchored down by your addictions and your desires. I'm going to take those things off of you. I'm particularly sensitive as well as I say this. Some of us are bruised by the sins of other people. People who have hurt us. And Jesus is saying, I've come to relieve you of that burden. He's saying, you can be free from the bitterness that they put into your heart. You can be free from the hate that you have for those people. They deserve every bit of it. Don't get me wrong. But you can be free because that stuff's going to kill you too. He says you can be free from the burden of what they did to you. You can be free from that because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But he's saying there that he is going to take those burdens. He's going to take those weights because he has, as Isaiah chapter 53 says, he has carried our grief. He has carried our sorrows. He's taken those things. He is carrying those for us. And if they have any worry, if have any concern, he will take those too. You can cast your cares on him, all your cares on him, for he careth for you. Jesus is bringing relief to those that are burdened. Finally, his purpose in verse 19, you see that his purpose is to bring grace to all people. He says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, the year of the Lord, I, I realize I'm at the end of my sermon, and I always hate when I do this, but sometimes the Bible makes you do this. You preach in the Bible, it does this. I've got to go a little bit deep for you, just a minute. Can y'all, can y'all hang with me for just a second? I know y'all are like, shut up, Matthew. No, hang on, shut up, shut up. Give me just another second. Hang with me, please. Please hang with me, okay? 
right, you're the Lord. Not a calendar date. Not December the 5th, whatever. That's not, that's not what the year of the Lord is. Not even a year, like 2021. That's not what it is. Not, that's not what that is. It is really this introduction of a new era. Just like we used to, we, 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 our language has changed for things that we're trying to take God out of our history and everything else, but we used to call, like this would be 2021 A.A.D., Anno Domina, the year of our Lord. The idea that this is the new era in which Jesus has come. That's what, that's what that means. So the year of the Lord is not a calendar date, but a new era. And it's reflective of, it's not exactly the same thing, but it, it brings to mind, I think, I think purposely brings to mind something that is called the year of Jubilee. This is in Leviticus chapter 23, the year of Jubilee. This is where I told you, 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 you stay with me for a minute. It's interesting if you think about it, okay? So, y'all know what a Sabbath is? Everybody know what a Sabbath is? Every six days you take a break. What that basically means, they did it on Saturday. We, we tend to do it on Sunday in, in this era. But every six days you take a break. That's the idea. Because Jesus, or rather God, rested on the seventh day of, of, of uh, creation. So, Sabbath. But they take that idea out over seven years. So, every seven years you take a break. So, you have this year of rest for the land and all that. Now, there was all these rules and regulations around. But every seven, seven years, so how are we at seven times seven? Can I do the math real quick? We're at 49, is that right? Okay, 49. So that 50th year was a year of Jubilee. Now, here's something really cool. I think this is cool. We ought to do this in this, this country, I think. <laughs> There'd be some real rich people that won't be rich anymore. But anyway, that's another thing. Um, here's what's going to happen in the year of Jubilee. Every, every seventh, seventh year, so 50, every 50 years, if there was any debt, gone. If you had bought, bought some land from your, like I bought land from your family because I wanted to grow some crops on it, I'd have to give it back to your family because that was family. That's, and Israel was all given to certain families, and I had to give it back to that family. That was what I had to do. If there were people that had been indentured or slaves enslaved to me because I needed, I, you know, I got them on the cheap to do some work for me, I had to let them go. If they wanted to stay with me, that was on them, but they could go. There was no, no requirement to stay with me as a slave any longer. But every 50 years, basically anything that anybody owed to anybody, done, gone, erased. The clock set back to zero. The debts were forgiven, slaves were freed, land was returned. Here's the interesting thing. This is why it's so cool. As best as I can tell, and the scholars that I've read after confirm this, Israel never recognized this thing, this day, this year of Jubilee. So, you go to Daniel chapter 9, there's some all kinds of stuff, and I, I get all into it, but I, I get a little, little interest, it's interesting to me, but I won't go, I'll just summarize and say, you go look at the at, 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 uh, eschatology, end time study and all that, this all stuff comes back together, but I want you to understand that that is however many years, and I, I should remember this because I was looking at it the other day, but anyway, the point is, it's many, many years of Jubilee they didn't recognize. That's a whole lot of wrongs that were never righted. A whole lot of wrongs that were never righted. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I have come to preach the year of the Lord. I have come to preach that I am coming to right all those wrongs. I'm coming to fix all of those debts. I'm trying to come in and settle all of that. That's what I'm doing, and I'm announcing that for anybody 
that will, whosoever will, as he says in John 3.16, that if you simply believe on me, you will have all of this. He's saying, I've come to make sure everybody has grace available to them. That's what he has come. He has come first as a baby in Jerusalem, or rather in, in, in Bethlehem. He was born as a baby, a little baby in, in Bethlehem. And he is now with us. His word, I have his word in my hands. His spirit dwells within me. And we know that he will come again in power and glory. Now, now can y'all turn somewhere with me? This is where I, I, I'm getting excited about this. This is getting excited to me. Go to, go to Isaiah chapter 61. If y'all can do that, that would be wonderful. Isaiah 61. I, I don't think in all the time I've preached here, I've ever had you go to another passage, have I? Anybody attest to that? I don't think I have. This is the first time I've done that. I'm going to have to go to two before I'm done here, and I'm almost done. I promise you, I'm almost done. 61, verse 2. Isaiah 61. Now, if you, were, if you could, if you wanted to, you can hold your finger in, in Luke 4 and look at this together, because I want you to kind of compare and contrast what Jesus says and versus what is in the, in the text. But if you go to Isaiah chapter 61 and you read verse 1, I won't reread it, but it pretty well maps to verse um, 18 of Luke 4. Okay? Almost directly. But if you go to Isaiah 61, verse 2, verse 19 maps to the first phrase, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. If you go back to Luke 4, you will see Jesus put the period right there and closes the book. But I want you to keep reading what happens after that. What does Jesus leave out? And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. He is saying, listen, I'm here to help y'all. I'm here because I love you. I'm here because I'm trying to save you. I'm here to settle your debt. I'm here to take the burdens off of you. I'm here to open your eyes. I'm here to, to release you from slavery. I'm here to help you folks. Period. Close the book. But there's more to the story. Jesus is coming again someday, and that day of the Lord will soon turn into a day of vengeance. Now, I want y'all to understand that this has been all sweet and loving and kind to this point. And thank you, Jesus, for His sweetness and His lovingness and His kindness. But do not miss that Jesus stopped there, put a period there, because He said, I'm making myself available for freedom for everybody. But don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Because He's coming again soon. Now, Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus, that's a comfort to you. First Thessalonians says, you know, we comfort each other with these words. Yeah, Jesus is coming soon. But that is a terror to the unbeliever. I, you can turn here if you want to. I'm going to read to you in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. This is the end of time. This is the same Jesus we just saw reading, in Luke, or reading the Scripture in Luke chapter 4. The same Jesus. Exact same Jesus. He's not, it's not a different form, different person. This is the same person. It says in Revelation chapter 19, talking about the future, that John sees a vision of the future, says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he shall judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. 
and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm telling you, you need to understand that Jesus has come in grace. He has come with love. He has come with opportunity. He has come with forgiveness. But if we reject that, if we turn against that, the second clause of verse, or Isaiah 51, verse 2, comes into effect. That day of vengeance will come. So you need to speak in now. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. He's come to intervene in our poverty, in our brokenness, in our enslavement, in our blindness, in our burdens. He's come to intervene. But will you speak in now? And I ask you to stand. We're just going to have a moment of invitation. We're going to ask you just to simply stand. We'd appreciate if you would bow your heads, just to close your eyes, just to take a minute to be introspective, to hear the message that was preached, to say, what does this mean for me? For some of you, that means, some of you, that means, you need to say, Jesus, I believe you, and I want your salvation. And I want you to come, and I want to help you see what he said in his word about you needing to be saved. For some of you, you may say, well, I'm glad Jesus has come. I, he is my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for doing all that. But I've got a burden. I, I've got a pain. I've got sin that I'm struggling with. You need to come and just say, Lord, I know why you came. You've got to help me with why you came. You came for this reason. It's what you need to help me with. Want you to come. Lord, please move on your people. Help them to see what they need to respond to you, to seek you, to look for you. And I pray that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all come as the Lord moves you.